<laughs> I'm just kidding. My name is Matt Hickey. Brent and I call ourselves good friends. I count it a privilege to know him. Uh, we've gotten to know one another quite well over the years. He officiated at the wedding of my beautiful bride and I just a few years ago. That was a sweet privilege, and we were glad to have him there. And for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, he asked me to teach a little bit this spring, and I was happy to do so. Last fall, when he made that invitation, he said, would you consider periodically doing that? I said, of course, I'm happy to help in any way. And he said, uh, we're going to have a, a six-week series on the 23rd Psalm. I said, that'd be great. Just give me the easy verses. So I've got verse 4 tonight, which we'll go through in just a second. Let me ask you to take a moment. We, we uh, want to intentionally weave fellowship into our Wednesday nights. So you have rapidly dropped to your seats. Let me ask you to just take a moment and say hello to somebody next to you. You might ask, why didn't they warn me that this guy was going to be here? Because the back doors just got locked, so you're stuck for the next 40 minutes. Say hello to somebody. And I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and come on down. I'm tempted to pull a Rob Coles and forget about it for a few minutes, but what the heck, let's get it, get it started if we can. For those of you that call Timberline home, again, this is an opportunity to give to and, of course, through this church to the many wonderful ministries. If you're a guest here tonight, of course, we don't expect you to give. We're certainly just glad to have you join us tonight. Now, those of you that have been regularly attending this spring know that we've been walking for the past several weeks through the 23rd Psalm. This is our fourth week. We're on verse 4 tonight. Pastor Brent and then last week Pastor Rob have, have asked us to join together and read through the entire psalm in a different version each week. So tonight I'm going to ask you to join me. We're going to read tonight from the Jewish Publication Society's translation of what's called the Tanakh or the Hebrew Scriptures. Just thought it would be informative for us to take a slightly different perspective on this tonight. So join with me if you will. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me to water in places of repose. He renews my life. He guides me in right paths as befits his name. Though I walk through a valley of deepest darkness, I fear no harm. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You spread a table for me in full view of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My drink is abundant. Only goodness and steadfast love shall pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long years. Amen. So tonight we're going to focus on verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's the King James Version, of course. And I want to share a couple things to think about tonight. The first one is this concept of walking in shadows. Sometimes it's shadows of death. Sometimes shadows of despair, of depression, of desperation. Periods for all of us when we walk in the valley of the shadow are common. In fact, if you have a Bible promise book, you might find it somewhere in there, probably not on page one, but somewhere in there, a promise that came from the lips of our Savior. 
in this world, you will have trouble. The wonderful thing about that promise is there's more to it. There's a but or a however or an and yet. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. We live in a fallen world, and we will have periods of deep darkness, of shadow, but we need to take heart. The phrase in the King James, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, echoes Jesus' words. We will have trouble. It's, it's a matter of when we walk through those deep shadows. Now, David, the author of this psalm, was a shepherd. He understood this picture that he's painting here literally from moments in his life as a shepherd walking through the wadis, the deep ravines in Israel where there was no view of the sun, where his role as a shepherd was in the shadows, where the predators might be lying in wait. He understood that. He also understood it metaphorically. David had his own moments in the valley of the shadow of death, some by his own making. You recall, David spent some time in the shadow of death manipulating Uriah to his own gain. Recall this image? He spent a period of time in prayer and fasting for his child, the child conceived by Bathsheba, in that heated moment where he wouldn't eat in constant prayer. When he got word that the child had died, he rose, he washed his face, he oiled his beard, and he went on about the business of life. And his servants were stunned. You, you mourned, you prayed, you fasted while the child yet lived. And David's words are important. He can't come to me, but someday I will go to him. This is an echo of a promise that we cling to. The phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, actually comes to us, of course, from the King James. You'll notice in the JPS version I read tonight, I talked a valley, about a valley of deep shadows. These are alternative ways to interpret that particular phrase in the Hebrew. Shadow of death. In many translations, it's simply deep shadows. It's not a phrase that's widely used in Scripture. In all of the Old Testament, that, that phrase or variations on it only appear 18 times. Ten of the 18 actually come from the book of Job, which in some ways is not terribly surprising. Job certainly had a journey through the valley of shadows himself as well. One that, again, is a platform for a prophetic promise for us comes from Isaiah 9.2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. It's a wonderful promise that in the darkest places, that light can shine. It's a young man born in England in 1859, son of a doctor, pious family that had recently converted to Roman Catholicism, raised in, in that faith, committed to that faith, so committed that as a young man, he decided to go to seminary, actually disappointing his father who wanted him to follow in his footsteps and be a physician. He spent seven years at the seminary. In the seventh year, the superiors at that seminary came to him and told him it was time for him to move on. This is not for you. After seven years in seminary, after pursuing the desires of his heart, as he began to tiptoe into his own valley of deep darkness, he thought, well, let me turn to medicine. This is what my dad wanted me to do. And so I'll pursue medicine. The fact of the matter is it wasn't what he wanted to do. His heart wasn't in it. But six years of the study of medicine led him to a similar crossroads. And he dropped out of medical school. 
after the disappointment of his father and family. The shadows deepened, and he found himself living on the streets of London, homeless, penniless, addicted to opium. He had a gift that he would occasionally exercise. He would find bits of paper, and he would put pencil to paper and craft poems. And he would take these poems to a local publishing house, often just dropping them off, wrapped in whatever he could find. And for a number of months, nobody knew who the author of these poems were. They knew they had, they had a talent on their hands, but nobody knew. It was the dusty poet, because these things kept showing up as if they had been on the street. In fact, they had. They'd been sleeping with him the night before. One day, they finally caught him when he was dropping off his latest installment. And the publisher at this particular publishing house, took him under his wing, cleaned him up, got him back on his feet, published his work. This young man would die at the age of 47, not too long after he was redeemed or rescued off the streets from tuberculosis. But in that short time where he flourished as a poet, he put together a number of powerful poems, one of which some of you are probably familiar with. It's called The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven was authored by Francis Thompson in the 1890s. The word picture here, hound of heaven, to me, paints an alternative way of thinking about the role of the shepherd. You get the wonderful word picture in the New Testament about the, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in the fold and goes to seek the one who's lost. That's exactly what the hound was like in the life of Francis Thompson. The opening stanza says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears I hid from him and under running laughter. It's a wonderful picture of hiding from this hound. Do you suppose sheep? We've talked in the last several weeks about how smart sheep are. High IQ animals, right? It's quite possible that the shepherd is in pursuit of the sheep, they simply hear the footsteps, the sound of breathing. I'm headed in the other direction. We do that sometimes as believers as well. The hound is in pursuit of us. Thompson articulates this in a powerful, image-laden poem about him running and running and running. But when he gets to the final stanza, he asks a rhetorical question. Is my gloom, is my deep darkness, is my valley of the shadow of death after all, the shade of his hand, the hound's hand, outstretched caressingly. I'm trying to help. What you think is a shadow is my hand reaching out to bring you back into the fold. We need to understand that image and I think cling to it. Whenever we walk in shadows, we're not alone. Now, we've had moments, I've had moments that range from the mountaintop moments the ones you want to tell your friends about, the ones you want to cling to, and other moments where you'd rather forget them. I can remember 10 years ago, it was almost 10 years ago to the day, I was with one of my closest friends. We were in South America climbing in the Andes. We were on the side of an active volcano, 19,000-foot peak in Ecuador. And, and there are rhythms to the climbing life that are really interesting to think about. We left a hut, a hut that was about 15,000 feet at 11 o'clock at night. Spent two hours trudging through scree and rock and cold, and, and there's a rhythm. It's the crunch, crunch. <laughs> it's about all you do. No, nobody's talking. 
we got to the edge of the glacier. You sit down, and all you see is little headlamps. Everybody's on the edge of the glacier, putting on their crampons, getting ready for the final push. And I looked up into the sky, and one thing that's fun about looking up into the southern sky, for anybody that's been to South America, Australia, et cetera, is it's a whole different panorama. It's wonderful. And I just happened to look up at the right time. Shooting star came by. I'll never forget that moment. A few hours later, as the sun was coming up, we were on the west face of this mountain. So the sun's coming up on the opposite side of the mountain. We stopped for a breath, which we did about every three seconds on this climb, okay? We looked back to the plain off to the west, and the sun was casting a shadow of the mountain that we were on. And if I, if I was in Photoshop, I could not have drawn the lines any straighter. Those of you that have been guests at my house have seen that picture. There's a pyramidal shadow of this mountain cast off in, into the western plain. It was just incredible. It's another one of those memorable moments. I also have other memories. I have memories of waking up in a hospital in Denver with a nurse picking glass out of my forehead that, that used to be our windshield and having her tell me that my first wife and our second child were gone. I remember visiting my sister in the months before she passed away at the age of 39. She weighed 60 pounds. She'd been ravaged for a year and a half by cervical cancer. Those are not the memories that we celebrate. Those, those are the part of the warp and woof of life. Those are the valleys of the deep shadows. But there was never a moment, praise God, never a moment where I thought, where are you? Now that can happen. The same author of the 23rd Psalm, our brother David, also wrote Psalm 10. And the opening line in Psalm 10 is, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Where are you in times of trouble? David had his moments where he wondered, Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And we can have that happen to us as well. Part of the beauty of being in Christian fellowship is we can cling to others that may have been down that road before. We are enjoined, Paul writes this in Corinthians, to comfort others with the comfort we have been given from God. One of my fondest memories of Wednesday nights, my wife is sitting right here in, in the third row. We met because of a Wednesday night service. I like Wednesday nights. It's a blessing, okay? We, we had mutual friends who were here and saw me sitting by my lonesome one Wednesday night and... and Loretta popped into mine, I popped into mine. She and her husband were on the mission field in Argentina. The very same year I lost my wife, she lost her husband in an automobile accident. And it, it's that tapestry of tears, of pain and sadness that the Lord can weave into this wonderful picture of a second opportunity. It's a beautiful thing, and I'm thankful for it. We are reminded in Scripture that wherever we go, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Great Commission reminds us, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Our friend David, this poet laureate of Israel, also wrote Psalm 139. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness, the deep shadows, 
shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, and the darkness and light are both alike to thee. No matter where we find ourselves, we're not beyond the reach of the one who leaves the fold to seek and save the lost. My second point is that we will have opportunities, challenges, situations, circumstances where we are obliged to have an opportunity to face evil, to confront it. I don't wish that on anybody. Jesus doesn't wish that on anybody. But it's part of life. We are enjoined here, though we face evil, not to have any fear because he is with us. There are some current reminders just within the last week. It's striking to me as I thought about preparing this just within the last week. This weekend, here at Timberline, we celebrated a magnificent ministry, the U-Count campaign. It's a beautiful, it's a heroic, it's an enormously important effort on the behalf of uh, a number of men and women at this church who have invested time and talent and treasure, some of whom have gone in, into India to intervene in one of the most evil circumstances ever to blight the situation of humanity. And that, that's the sex trade where innocent young girls are stolen right off the streets and into a life of prostitution and opportunities to intervene and confront that evil, to create a new life, to redeem circumstances. It's a great thing. Just last week was the March for Life. It's another opportunity to confront a terrible tragedy, terrible circumstances. I was reminded this week of another circumstance. Now, this was a, a true accident, but it's interesting. I spent 10 minutes with my daughter on Monday morning. Those of us that are old enough to remember will remember that Monday was the anniversary of the Challenger explosion in 1986. Do you remember this? Right? We're, we're now in the days of YouTube. So I was able to call up the YouTube video, and it was a little history lesson for my 14-year-old daughter and I. We watched that. We wa and by the way, it's interesting. It's been so long since I thought about that. I was watching the CNN, the five-minute clip on the launch, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, off it went. And of course, boom, there's a massive explosion, but the commentator didn't even know it. He continued to go on as if everything was okay. It took a while because the shock was so great for it to sink in. I also teed up Reagan's speech. Do you remember this? The closing line of Reagan's speech was a, really a wonderful thing where he talked about the men and women, the seven that were on, on the Challenger, who had loosed the surly bonds of earth, do you remember this, and touched the face of God? It's a, it's a beautiful, almost a poetic image, appropriate for the circumstances. January 27th is Holocaust Remembrance Day. If ever there was an evil that required con uh, confronting, that was, that was certainly it. It's interesting, and I just discovered this today. On January 30th, this day in 1933, Adolf Hitler was installed as the chancellor in Germany. Two days later, 48 hours later, a 26-year-old young German pastor gave a radio address in which he spoke about the young people of Germany and their view of what the word, the role, the office of Führer or leader means. It was the first public confrontation by anybody in Germany with Adolf Hitler. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not even 27 years old, two days after Hitler was installed, had an opportunity to speak to the German public about true leadership. Fuhrer in German simply means leader. True leadership and idolatry. Now, Bonhoeffer, like tens of millions of other Europeans raised during the same age, understood the valley of the shadow of death in ways that, that I pray we never will. When he was a young man, he was eight years old when World War I started. His older brother, Walter, enlisted, volunteered to go to the front, and was dead within two weeks. The scale is something, again, we, we have a hard time understanding. Most estimates are in that four-year period, somewhere between 30 and 40 million people lost their lives. There were some battles in World War I which were astonishing only for the level of carnage. In 1916, in the Battle of the Somme, Somme River Valley in France, the British launched an offensive with a particular objective in mind. Four months later, four months, and 1.2 million lives later, they had advanced a total of six miles. There are estimates that for every centimeter of progress that they made, two lives were spent. For every centimeter. Simultaneously, in 1916 at Verdun, a million French and German soldiers lost their lives and they didn't change a square inch of territory. Bonhoeffer knew, his family knew, French families, British families, Russian families knew the horror of war. He would later write when he was a doctoral student that this World War I experience was a time when death stood before the door of almost every house calling for entrance. They understood. And yet, a generation later, 1939, they reloaded, they did it again to the tune of 70 plus million lives that were lost. Now as a young man, Bonhoeffer actually finished a PhD in theology at the age of 21. To say he was precocious was, was an understatement. He wrote a number of interesting books, books that pay rereading. One of them is called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he wrote in the 1920s, in The Cost of Discipleship, he talks about cheap grace and costly grace. And he makes a point, an observation that would bear fruit. It was prophetic in some ways. I don't know that he, he appreciated that at the time. But he said when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, there's an element of Christian theology that's woven into this. We're, we are to die to self, die to sin. We're a new creation. In Bonhoeffer's case, he had to wrestle with a terrible decision. He was a Christian pacifist. He had spoken, written, lectured, and understood, again, from having borne the pain of losing his brother, having lived through World War I as a young man, he, he understood the horrors of war in a very real way. In 1939, he was offered a, an opportunity to go back to Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He had been there in the early 30s. And they said, come back. The handwriting was on the wall. He was part of a movement called the Confessing Church in Germany. That, again, was a very public and explicit confrontation with the Nazi regime. So there was a real risk that, that if he continues to push, this is not going to end well. He took that opportunity. He got on the boat. He went to New York, was convicted. He wasn't there long, about two weeks. 
turn right around and go back on the boat again. He said, I cannot be part of the reconstruction of a Christian society in Germany if I'm not willing to go through this with my fellow Germans. He sailed back. He ultimately became part of a series of plots to take Hitler's life, unsuccessful ones. The closest one was, was portrayed in the movie in the last 10 years. It starred Tom Cruise. The movie Valkyrie is a true story about an attempt on Hitler's life. Bonhoeffer was arrested in 1944, was imprisoned. Two weeks before the Flossenburg concentration camp was liberated, when much of the territory that had been occupied by Germany had already been lost, when the war was all but lost, in April of 1945, Heinrich Himmler ordered Bonhoeffer and his co-conspirators to be executed. He was hung on a Sunday morning at the age of 39. A contemporary of his, Martin Niemöller, also a pastor, made the following observation. Now, Niemöller spent seven years in concentration camps. He lived through the war. Lived to the ripe old age of 92. But as he reflected back on this, one of his, his more famous observations is this. First, they came for the socialists. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. That's the voice of conviction. There are opportunities to confront evil, and we're not able to do so. Bonhoeffer had his weak moments. He was asked to officiate at the marriage of his sister and brother-in-law as a young pastor. His brother-in-law was Jewish. He sought counsel from fellow pastors, and they told him not to do it. So he said no, and he never forgave himself for the rest of his life for that act of, of weakness in his own mind. My third point my favorite one is finding comfort. It's interesting that the way this is phrased, it's thy rod and thy staff that comfort me. Before we unpack that, I want to point something out. As you go back and reread the 23rd Psalm, notice the shift in verse 4. In verses 1, 2, and 3, we're talking about God in, ter in terms of He. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. We move to you in verse 4. There's an intimacy, a comfort here from closeness in David's language. Now, the Hebrew word naham is what we translate into the English word comfort. It's actually the same cognate or root word that gives us the proper name Noah, interestingly enough. Okay. Now, comfort in the Hebrew is used over a hundred times throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 49, shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. From Isaiah 51, 12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men, the sons of men who are but grass? Have no fear, for I am with you. 
when Jesus started his public ministry, he had repeatedly said the time is not right, not now. He had that wonderful confrontation with his mother, mother at the wedding feast of Cana, right? The miracle of turning the water into wine. And she trusted him. He said, now, now is not the appropriate time. She just looked at the servants and said, do whatever he says. Bring me the jugs of water. And the wonder there again is that all the guests came up and said, hey, you saved the good stuff for last. <laughs> Pretty neat, right? Well, he's in the temple one day. He's called forth to read from the scrolls. The scroll comes from Isaiah 61. This is the launching point for Jesus' public ministry. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The springboard for his public ministry is comfort, consolation, care, healing, liberty. Now, here's a pop quiz for you. Based on what I just told you, if I were to ask you who in the Old Testament is, is the prophet of comfort, what would you tell me? Who's the prophet of comfort? Hint, I just quoted from Isaiah three times in a row, right? So it would be tempting to conclude that Isaiah is the prophet of comfort. Of the hundred uses of the word comfort in the Old Testament, about a third of them come from three books. From Psalms, primarily our friend David, in third place, third most frequent use of that word in the Old Testament. Second place is our friend Isaiah. He uses it a lot, but he's not the prophet of comfort. Do I have any brave souls? Who do you suppose? Another major Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, from, from whom we get the, the phrase Jeremiah, which is a screed. <laughs> right? In fact, Jeremiah didn't want to play this role, because all he was was a prophet of doom in his own eyes. But that's not entirely true. It's a caricature. Jeremiah is the most frequent prophet of comfort in the Old Testament. We find that word more often in Jeremiah than anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's an interesting thing to contemplate. In the New Testament, we find the, used, the word used repeatedly in the Greek. I'll just give you one. Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth in the opening verses Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And in the Greek, the word that we translate as comfort is a conjunction of two. Parakaleo. Parakaleo means to call alongside. I love that. There's a nearness again to this. There's an intimacy. There's a sense of not being alone to this. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, 
goes by the name the paraclete, the one who is called alongside, the one who comes and journeys with us. So there's a sense in both the Old Testament and the New Testament of a notion of nearness. God's not far away. He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Now what about the uh, shepherd's image of the rod and the staff? They are the source of comfort. I would submit to you that in part they're sort of the source of comfort because in order for them to be effective, the shepherd has to be nearby. So it fits with the theme that we've been talking about. These are two separate instruments or two separate tools. Poetic Hebrew often uses a repetitive type of imagery, but this is not the case here. Rod and staff are two different words in Hebrew, two different tools. They both imply, to varying degrees, protection, Correction, care. The rod is a short tool, club-like tool, perhaps a couple feet long. Again, can be used to ward off enemies. It can be used for guidance, steering, if you will. In fact, there are stories of shepherds using the club a little bit like a boomerang. So if the sheep, again, these wise sheep, you notice, again, there are, there are a variety of things that sheep do. Herd mentality, I think, was birthed from sheep in some ways, right? So if the sheep are headed in the wrong direction and the shepherd can't get there, he could toss the club in front of them to scare them away from the edge of the cliff or whatever it might be. Now, of course, we live in 20th century America, and the notion of anybody or, you know, even a whole country approaching a cliff or anything like that is utterly ridiculous, of course. But, you know, we're talking again about pastoral imagery here, and so I think it's probably appropriate that we at least contemplate this, right? Now, the rod can be used in a number of other ways that are really interesting as well, okay? We obviously get the picture again of teaching, that it's a tool or an implement to teach, in 2 Samuel 7.14, David writes, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. David goes on to write later in Psalm 89, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. So there's an educational tool here, if you will. Right? My dad used to talk about applying the board of education to the seat of learning. You ever heard that phrase? Okay. <laughs> you have to exercise that on occasion. There are passages from Proverbs that are often mistranslated but capture the flavor. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 22, 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The phrase, a rod for the back of fools, is used repeatedly in Proverbs. All we like sheep sometimes go astray. And while we don't again crave the rod of chastisement, we should be thankful for it when the Lord applies it in ways that save us. Now, the rod is also symbolic of something that I love. It can be symbol, a symbol of a direct heritage from God. In fact, the same word that we occasionally translate as rod can also be translated as tribe. 
symbolizing a familial relationship, a heritage from the Lord. Jeremiah 51, 19, it says, The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Psalm 74, 2 says, Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance. We are the rod of his inheritance, which thou hast redeemed this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. So there's an image of the rod that, that suggests correction, but also it's, it suggests connection in the family tree of the maker of heaven and earth. Now the staff is obviously the more common of the two images. The picture we get of the shepherd's crook, the tall instrument, if you will, often six or seven feet long. This is used again to guide along right paths, to rescue on occasion from traps, Again, our stories of shepherds using that crook to lift up a lamb without touching it and bring it back to mom for fear that the scent of my hands might break the bond between mother and child. It's an interesting image. And of course, it can also be used for protection from predators. The point I'm trying to make here is that shepherds' tools protect sheep from predators but also protect sheep from themselves. That's where the correction, the steering wheel mentality comes in. Now, our Savior walked the dusty roads of Galilee, Judea, in and around Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum and Jerusalem. And in his short period of public ministry, he also had a moment where he confronted the valley of the shadow of death. We recall that on the night that he was betrayed, he went from the breaking of bread and the pouring of wine of this new and everlasting covenant to the washing of the feet of his sheep, the disciples. An object lesson in service. They left the upper room. They went to the garden for a breath of fresh air. He pulled aside his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. His soul was crying out in anguish, and he took that inner circle and said, come with me. I need you. Of course, we know what happened. The disciples fell asleep. Jesus went a few feet away, sweat, blood, cried out to the Father that perhaps this cup might pass. But not my will, but yours be done three times in this dark night of the soul for our Savior. He sought comfort among the sons of men, his, his disciples, and found none. As Paul would later write, Jesus, for the joy set before him, took the cup of suffering willingly, the cup that was meant for us. He was betrayed with a kiss beaten without resistance, accused without merit, tried without justification, and crucified without a cause. That's the first part of the story. So I'm going to ask my friends to come up. We'll begin this process of transitioning towards breaking bread together here in just a few minutes. So if I can get the ushers to come in.